Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, April 21st. We begin with the guilty on all charges verdict that came down yesterday in the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. We get the details from Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington reporter. Next, it's our monthly conversation with Police Chief Mark Newfeld, and we get the Chief's reaction to the Chauvin trial verdict and look at the latest crime trends facing our city. Then it's another edition of Ask the Doctor with infectious disease specialist Dr. Craig Janney. As always, Dr. Janney answers COVID-19 questions sent in by you, the listener. And finally, with the Tokyo Games now less than 100 days away, we get an Olympic update. We speak with Annie Gagnon from the Canada Sport Institute on how preparations are going for our athletes. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. Verdict count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. Verdict count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. And there you have it, as read by the judge. The verdict uh, verdict was uh, sent down yesterday afternoon in the Derek Chauvin uh, trial. And, of course, we're talking about the murder of George Floyd uh, last year. It's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, we're joined by Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. And, uh, Reggie, you'd mentioned yesterday morning that it could take hours, it, it could take days. Uh, so you, you laid out the, the parameters there. You weren't surprised at how quickly we did have the verdict issued? I mean, look, in 2019, it took a jury 11 hours to come back with a third degree murder guilty verdict uh, for a police officer with Minneapolis police. Here we are two years later. It took 11 hours for them to come back, not just with a third degree murder conviction, but also second degree murder and second degree manslaughter. And very clearly here, the prosecution was able to convince the jury uh, that the video really did speak for itself. You know, it, it, we'll have to see what happens when it comes to any uh, opportunities here for an appeal. But between now and, and the, the you know, eight weeks from now when sentencing takes place, this is the beginning uh, of a conversation for what could be the turning of a page in American history. And Reggie, the former police officer taken away, taken out of court in handcuffs and outside, really jubilation as people celebrated the fact that the, the appropriate decision came down according to how people were feeling outside. And it, it seemed like it was a, a an event that kind of went on right throughout the evening, didn't it? Y- yeah, look, it was a moment for celebration, not just in Minneapolis that has really been uh, the center, uh, the center focus for police reform over the last year, uh, focusing on the life uh, and death of George Floyd, but really across the country, this moment of celebration. Uh, but there is still some unease with it, as you heard from the vice president, from the president, from members of the Floyd family, from Floyd family attorneys, that justice doesn't equal justice for everyone if it's just for one person uh, and it's not the end of the road this is going to be uh, an opportunity for things to happen in the future uh, and and you heard uh, the attorney general from Minnesota uh, Keith Ellison say that he's not calling this justice he's simply calling this accountability but nonetheless this was a verdict that was widely applauded by the entire country we got to, you know obviously a handful of charges sentencing expected in eight weeks What are we expecting? Do we have some kind of an idea of a range of uh, what these uh, charges uh, could be? Yeah, I mean, look, the maximum for second-degree murder on a conviction is 40 years. Uh, in 2019, that officer that was convicted of third-degree murder, uh, he was sentenced to 12 and a half years. That's half of what the sentencing guidelines are for third-degree murder at 25 years. Uh, there's going to be a question now, given the fact that Derek Chauvin is a convicted felon, is he going to receive a maximum? Or because he's a first-time offender, will they try to take that into consideration and possibly give any kind of lessened uh, sentence? We also have to remember that uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters' comment 
comments uh, that led the judge to say that there could be grounds for an appeal could also factor into this. The media coverage could factor into this uh, as well. So any number uh, of opportunities uh, are available here for sentencing. The judge has wide discretion. You know, I don't it, it's hard to see anybody anticipating that a maximum is going to be given out. But you can imagine that there is still a bit of worry on the streets uh, that some people may think that the sentence handed mm-hmm. isn't going to be enough. It's very rare, Reggie, for a police officer to be charged, but certainly to be found guilty in a case like this. But it was powerful to see the president, Joe Biden, and the vice president, Kamala Harris, both coming out yesterday and speaking and declaring that, frankly, it's not enough. Absolutely. And, and I mean, look, this wasn't even the president talking to the nation. This was like a consoler in chief having a conversation uh, with people that were at the table about an issue that really has been impacting the country, which is why you heard President Biden echo the words from former President Barack Obama that this was one step. This is not the end of the road. But to have Vice President Harris bring uh, race into the conversation by saying that this is not a black America problem. It's not a people of color problem. This is a problem for every American. Uh, and she went on to say that uh, it, it, it keeps them from fulfilling that promise of liberty and justice for all, understanding that, again, justice may have been served. Accountability may have been recognized in this one instance, but things aren't going to change overnight. Uh, and there is a very clear understanding that this conversation for change is going to have to continue to move forward uh, if the country really wants to move forward, because there is a fear here that in the next situation, if this happens again, the conversation is going to start back at zero. Reggie, security measures were extremely tight. We did see some video, not only in Minneapolis, but across the nation uh, down south yesterday, as far uh, reaching as Los Angeles. Uh, Have you heard of any unrest uh, as far as um, in response to the verdict? It seems like it's been pretty calm. Is that the case? Yeah, it, for the most part, uh, I, I have not found uh, through any of the papers this morning or for anything that I've seen any kind of uh, outbreaks uh, of violence in the streets. And it's hard to see how that would happen. This was a moment for celebration for so many Americans who have been, uh, you know, keeping their finger on the button and watching this for the last year to see what the outcome was going to be. And unfortunately, the only place where you're seeing an uprising in anger on the streets is in Columbus, Ohio, where you had another police involved shooting in the moments that that verdict was being read out uh, in that Minneapolis courtroom. And I think uh, as this weight was lifted off of the city of Minneapolis and the family of George Floyd. You're going to see that weight now put down on a family in Columbus, Ohio, as they really try to work through the situation with that officer involved shooting, which is why uh, you hear these conversations saying justice for one means that this conversation needs to continue because it's not for all. You know, and back to the the George Floyd trial, it was interesting too, Reggie, to see. You know, it's usually a you know that blue wall of silence, or, or that they call it, or refer to it as, and and to see the other officers step up and and testify to say that this was wrong and it shouldn't never have happened. That situation should never have gone down the way it did. Does that change things? I think moving forward as well. Absolutely. I mean, look, to have a police chief, a sitting police chief, testify against one of their own former members uh, that spoke leaps and bounds to where policing needs to be in this country and to where some police officers want to go. Because look, at the end of the day, trust is a major issue here, especially when it comes to uh, minorities and communities of color uh, and police forces. Uh, and to have these police officers stand up and say, look, we can do better. This does not represent all of us. Uh, that was that beginning of the conversation to reach out to offer 
offer that olive branch to say, look, we can work together. We can make policing uh, something that is going to be beneficial uh, to all Americans. Uh, and I think as well, when you have someone like the Attorney General Merrick Garland standing out to say, look, we are going to continue uh, a civil rights investigation into the death of George Floyd, unlike the former administration, where they really stood behind that blue wall. They tried to say there was no systemic racism uh, in American policing. I think you have a more transparent conversation taking place where police are saying we can do better. We got about 20 seconds, but I just want to look ahead to eight weeks until we have, uh, of course, the, the, the charges being, uh, you know, um, uh, released. But having said that, in August, more with the George Floyd case, and that's the other officers involved. Is that right? Yeah, there are three other officers that are going to be facing aiding and abetting charges uh, to the death uh, of George Floyd. It's unclear whether or not the the uh, the, the sentencing uh, and the, the verdict that happened with George uh, with Derek Chauvin is going to carry over and resonate with this case at all. They're going to be three very different trials. The only reason they didn't happen together is because of COVID protocols. You know, this is going to be something again where people are going to be watching to see if the officers that were there on scene are going to face the same uh, kind of scrutiny with the same evidence presented. That's something that we've got to wait a couple of months to figure out. Thank you so much for the update, Reggie. Appreciate it this morning. Thank you. That is Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent. 710, it's mornings with Sue and Andy and uh, with a powerful message sent in the U.S., a guilty verdict was handed down in the case of a former police officer charged with murder. What's the reaction from the rank and file here in Calgary? Well, with that and more, it's time for our monthly check-in with Calgary Police Chief Mark Newfeld. Good morning to you, Chief. Good morning, Andy. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time with us once again here. Your thoughts, I'm sure many people were watching yesterday, uh, the guilty verdict in the George Floyd case. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, as you say, I think everybody was watching that uh, really closely uh, around the world, frankly. And uh, I wasn't really surprised with the verdict, to be honest. Um, there was some interesting testimony um, throughout the course of the uh, the trial. But I think uh, when you go back to the basics there, when you look at the fact that um, you know, that's something that, that sort of occurred on video over the course of about 10 minutes. You know, we felt from a very early point that uh, that, that wasn't consistent with, with any police tactics or certainly anything that we train on. And so, yeah, not surprised by the verdict. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing your thoughts on that one. Want to switch gears a little bit and go to COVID, Chief, because uh, we know still police officers are not included in that, uh, you know, first range of frontline workers that were getting vaccines. Are they now able as police officers or is it just, you know, your officers are going in whenever they can based on the age groups that are available? You know, Sue, we were actually added at one point there after uh, some oh, strong did? Okay. lobbying. Yeah, to, to phase two. Oh, seat. good. And, but recently we were advised that it was pushed back um, for frontline uh, police officers. And so a little bit confusing because, of course, that happens at the same time that we're seeing um, sort of an expansion of the age groups for um, shots for healthy, or healthy Albertans. So anyway, bottom line is we'll be getting some uh, clarity around that. But uh, I think right now probably the most important thing is that, you know, as many people get vaccinated as, as possible, mm-hmm. as quickly as possible. All right, still on the COVID front, but a, a bit of a different angle here. Uh, we saw the stats that the uh, Calgary Police Service and City Bylaw have handed out hundreds of tickets to people breaking public health measures. But now we're hearing that a majority of those tickets are being withdrawn immediately in court. Let's let's talk about this because, you know, you got your frontline officers doing their due diligence. And then we're hearing that they've just basically dismissed when it comes to court time. How frustrating is that? That's pretty frustrating. Um, I think, you know, one of the big things with this is along the, uh, along the road um, since the beginning of the pandemic and through the waves, there's been strong criticism. It seems like whenever we have enforced, 
you know, that, that's been inappropriate. And when we haven't enforced, we haven't done enough. But I think the truth of that is I think uh, our service has actually done, and, and, and the city by our partners, have probably done more enforcement than any other community uh, in Alberta. And at the end of the day, we rely on the system to work. And, and when things, uh, you know, the next thing that happens is for people who are wanting to get to court and some of the individuals that we're dealing with are actually, you know, wanting the tickets and wanting to take them to court. So I think it's very important that those um, cases get before the courts and get interpreted and decisions are made. Um, so that is very demoralizing for our members. We're working with our partners uh, from Alberta Justice, obviously, to make sure that we're providing them with the right uh, evidence and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, the offenses that are that are going forward are, are actually, you know, I, I wouldn't say they're not complicated because of the charter implications, but in terms of the behavior, uh, they're fairly straightforward. Yeah, and I mean, it's got to be frustrating for sure. So just to make it kind of clear for people, what is the rule? What are powers of police when it comes to, say, the uh, anti-mask protests, for lack of a better term? I know they've changed the name of those now, but what is the rule of officers? You know, I, I get that you're trying not to create a lot of havoc when these you know, protests go through, but what powers do police have? in that case? Yeah, good question, Sue. So it's important to recognize that uh, the right to protest and the right to demonstrate is a fundamental freedom guaranteed by the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So I think when the public health orders were drafted, you know, um, the act of protesting um, was not included in what would be considered a, um, you know, an outdoor social gathering. But the the sort of the behaviors and the, and the public health orders, like the need to wear masks and that sort of thing, is still a requirement, arguably. There would be people that would tell you that that's not the case, and then um, there would be people, obviously, that would tell you that that it is. Um, I guess suffice it to say the law is not in a steady state around this. We need to, these are relatively new health orders. There's, you know, like I say, there's a debate about the the enforceability and the the lawfulness of them. But at the end of the day, for us, for the, the, you know, the, uh, the agency that actually is responsible for enforcing them, those are the laws. And so when we go out, we're trying to actually um, not fill the courts with hundreds of these things, but we're trying to get uh, strategically targeted individuals who are, you know, organizing protests or whatever and get those ones in before the courts. And, you know, to your earlier point, that's why those getting in front of the courts and getting decisions made are actually really, really critical to this process. We always like it when we have the opportunity to speak with you, Chief, to talk about some trends. And the trend that seems the craziest to me, and it seems to be continuing, is the theft of catalytic converters from people's vehicles. Sue said she saw a video, and it can take seconds. To me, I have a hard time wrapping my head around it. How big of a deal is it that these uh, the, uh, these uh, types of thefts are happening in our, our city, and how common are they? Well, I think uh, going back over time there, they weren't that common. And so when they did occur, they were sort of a nuisance. But I think what we're seeing over time is that uh, the price for some of the uh, metals that are inside catalytic converters has gone up substantially. So that's actually increased um, the value of these on the black market. So there's a lot of work being done because uh, the numbers have gone up in all communities around Alberta and, frankly, across Western Canada. And so, you've, as, you, as you say, you've seen the videos where somebody's gone under, and it doesn't take long to cut a catalytic converter on, off of a vehicle. But, you know, the reality of it is folks that are doing that get, you know, a few hundred dollars for one of these. But the fix, if it's your vehicle mm-hmm. um, that has that cut off, is in the thousands. Oof. So this is costing, obviously, the insurance industry, and it's costing people a lot of money. And so it's, you know, it's gone from being just a nuisance crime to being something that's on the rise and something that needs to be dealt with. So we're trying to get a little bit more... Um, I think uh, education and awareness out there for folks about the crime and what's happening when they see, you know, people skulking around fence compounds where there's vehicles parked or whatever. Um, And also working with um, uh, scrap dealers who actually take these in. 
because there has to be an element of willful blindness when you've got an individual that comes in, you know, every other day bringing a, ca- right. a catalytic converter that looks new. So we're working on that end as well to get the uh, get the uh, prevention piece kicked in. And Chief, I wanted to ask you just quickly before we let you go, because we had a texter say you got taken for a lot of money. And I know this was a, a warning that police issued about jewelry scams. Can you tell us quickly what's going on in the city with that? Yeah, I think we saw a spike as well, and I think we do. In uh, It tends to be a seasonal thing as well when the weather gets better and people are out around you know, shopping malls or places like that. And you do get, I, I think that's what you're talking about mm-hmm, anyways, mm-hmm. where you get, yep. you get people, we get people coming through town from time to time that, uh, you know, walk up and engage people and they're, you know, a sleight of hand and they actually remove uh, jewelry from people uh, and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, you got to be careful um, in parking lots and in places where you're not wanting to engage with somebody, but they're coming to you for some reason and, and getting quite close to you. Um, I think people have to be quite cautious with that. And sometimes it is a scam. Thank you so much uh, for your time this morning, Chief. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, you guys. Have a wonderful day. You too. Our monthly check-in with Calgary Police Chief Mark Newfeld. It's 8-12 on Mornings with Sue and Andy, and throughout the pandemic, uh, we've been posing your COVID-19 questions to our expert, and we continue this morning thanks to an overwhelming number of questions we got last week. We say good morning to Associate Professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary, Dr. Craig Janney. Good morning good. to you, Dr. Janney. Good morning. Thanks again for your time and again uh, for answering as many questions as possible here on the program. So let's get right to it. Question number one is, please ask Dr. Jenny, if a woman is at increased risk of blood clots from AstraZeneca, if she's currently on a birth control pill, is the risk compounded or unrelated? So the risk is not what we would consider compounded, that, you know, there would be a risk associated with one treatment, a risk with the other. They don't synergize. So, you know, both risks still exist. And, you know, the more risk you take on, obviously the risk goes up. But it's not that if there was a risk with one, this one amplifies that risk. So so definitely no interaction that we've seen so far. Um, And, and, you know, therefore, it's just as safe whether you're on um, the, the contraception or not. Okay, perfect. After you received two shots and waited two weeks, Doc, are you safe to visit other people who are similarly protected? So the the recommendations out of the U.S. CDC is yes. Canada hasn't quite updated those regulations yet because we still not you know a lot of people with two shots. Mm-hmm. In Alberta, we are great news. You know, almost a quarter of people have been offered the first shot. That that number that's fully vaccinated much much smaller. So we got to wait till that catches up. But yes, that's the the ultimate goal right now is get everybody fully vaccinated and then get back to to some semblance of normal. Next one. I had a stroke, so should I be concerned about the AstraZeneca vaccine with the blood clotting issues? So it depends on the reason for the stroke, but in general, no, they're not related. And this is definitely a conversation to have with your primary care provider. So this is an extremely rare condition that that seems to be triggered by the vaccine, and it is not associated with previous history of blood clots for other reasons. So two distinct mechanisms, uh, but at the same time, if you ever, whether it's this or any other condition, again, never hesitate to ask your primary care provider these questions. Okay, doctor, um, if I have allergies to the penicillin family, can I still get the shot? So uh, odds are yes. Once again, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you to talk to your, your, your primary care physician. Uh, again, what we've seen with the shots is it's not general allergy. It is very severe reactions are the only ones that are cautioned against taking it. So if it's an anaphylactic type reaction, that is definitely a conversation you want to have, whether it's this vaccine or, to be honest, any vaccine. If you have a severe anaphylactic allergic reaction to other medications, always ask that question before receiving a new treatment.
We've got a very interesting question here, something I've never heard about, and it's been sent in by Diane. And she's wondering if, if we uh, have uh, could get some more news and more information about the COVID-19 vaccine that is made from actual inactivated COVID-19 virus. Apparently it comes out of uh, a, a lab in India. Do you know much about this particular type of vaccine? Yes, there's actually two or three of those. Uh, these are often the basis of, of uh, at least two, if not three, of the vaccines that had been approved, also produced in China. Um, they seem to work, but they have much, much lower efficacy than the mRNA or these viral vectored vaccines, the two uh, formulations and the four vaccines approved here in Canada. So this is our classic way of making a vaccine. It, it's what we do for things such as the flu. Um, they work for other things, but they don't work very well for coronavirus, which is why we've never had a vaccine for the common cold. We we needed a new technology to really step up that protection. Speaking of vaccines, is it recommended now, Has thing, have things changed, is it recommended to get a second different vaccine shot than the one we got for the first time around? So right now that is not recommended. Right now the recommendation is to stay with the exact same formulation you received the first time. There is a very interesting, and we're all eagerly waiting the results, an active study happening right now in the United Kingdom, which is asking that very question. And that's not because of any safety concerns, but we had seen for some other vaccine formulations, especially those used for research purposes in the lab, that if you change the type of vaccine from prime to boost, in some cases you actually get a much better boost, much stronger, much longer immunity. So they're actually testing that right now in the United Kingdom. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have the results yet, but depending on, on those results, we may very well see a recommendation that your boost be a different formulation down the road. Dr. Jenny, we have to take a quick break. Can you hang on uh, to join us for another of couple course. of stuff. That's Dr. Craig Jenny, infectious disease specialist. More of your questions coming up in one minute. 819, and we're back with Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the UFC with your COVID-related questions. Dr. Janney, here we go with our next round. Uh, we have a, a texter asking about concerns revolving when to get their second shot. There's so much conflicting information. Mm-hmm. Do we really have specifics to that, or are they just kind of pushing it in hopes that they can use that vaccine for everybody? pushing the dates back based on the real-world evidence. And this is evidence we have learned from, you know, some kind of provinces that got ahead of us on this, uh, Quebec, but also specifically from the UK. And, for example, if we look at the AstraZeneca vaccine, the, the actual testing has shown that if you wait until a minimum of 12 weeks for that booster, the response is better than if you give the booster at four or six weeks. So there's actually a sweet spot in these vaccines, and that's what we're basing some of these decisions on. And at the same time, it enables us to get the vaccine coverage out to as many people as possible as the first dose. Dr. Jenny, we've heard a lot from experts talking about how uh, the coronavirus is, in fact, airborne. So should we as a nation be rethinking outdoor health measures? I think we are in, in many instances, and the recommendation has you know, been consistent even from the first waves that if you cannot maintain that separation, even outdoors, we're encouraging people still to wear masks. And in, in certain hotspots, I know that that encouragement has been discussed more as perhaps even a, a, a requirement. It, it, it is just good practice. If you can't maintain physical separation, even if you're outside, if you're within that two meters, please consider wearing a mask. And when we think of events outside, often we can maintain those that, that space except for in parking lots or public washrooms or food service stands. So there may be dynamics that you can go and sit in a park, but when you get into an area that's crowded, 
you know, just put the mask on and that will provide a, a great deal of safety, even in the outdoor environment. Uh, on a related note, should we be concerned about being on a patio with a tent overhead? So a- again, there will be hopefully open sides and that creates the air movement. But yes, you know, the more indoors, the more constrained people are, the less air movement the, the risk goes up. So, uh, you know, this this idea of whether it's a hard roof or a soft roof, uh, you know, is, is really quite moot. It's more about the actual environment. And, and if it's a tent with sides and there's no air movement, that's essentially an indoor space. All right. This next one here is, uh, if we experience uh, unexpected short-term side effects, how certain are we that we don't uh, see um, unexpected long-term side effects years down the line from the vaccines? No, it's a very good question. But based on what other vaccines do, and we understand the, what we would sort of term the pharmacokinetics. So how long does the actual vaccine material last in your body? And we know that that's very short term. So we're, we are concerned about, does that induce an, a, a bad response in the body? Are you reacting to the vaccine? Once that's cleared, the, the vaccine functions the same way as other vaccines. It generates a memory immune response to a specific viral target. And this is the same as if we give a flu shot. So what's different is the delivery of of that target at the moment and that's where these adverse effects are are associated is that new chemistry that new delivery and as a result we're really only looking uh, the the risk of of severe effects is in that window after administration and not long term down the road dr janney this one a little bit of a two-pronger but uh, are is there any evidence of false flags for women uh getting you know leading them to think they might have breast cancer and is there anything that leads to women becoming infertile with this vaccine so no evidence whatsoever about impacts on fertility. So good news, and, and again, with uh, 70 million-plus doses administered in the UK, we've got a really good sample on that. The false flags, I mean, it, it, I don't necessarily like that term um, because it, it suggests we're making the wrong decisions, but it can create some anomalies, and, and we've, we've seen stories of this, and these are normally rapidly uh, investigated and, and can be dismissed, and one of the one of the things that has been noticed is if you get the shot, you could have, for example, lymph node swelling, and that could be picked up in imaging. Mm. And that might be, okay, well, somebody says, well, why are the lymph nodes swollen? And they'll look, and there's a vaccine, or they will do a second scan, and, and the lymph nodes will have come back down. Um, so there are potential ways of, of seeing this, but I don't think it's created a panic or a problem. So, you know, again, I, I hesitate with the false flag, but, okay. you know, there very, very much is a chance that things can be seen, for example, on, on a imaging uh, type uh, procedure. You've done it again, covered a lot of ground. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Janney. You're welcome, guys. Take care. You too. There's Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. 8.43 and ahead of the Tokyo Olympics, we're checking in on Team Canada. Joining us now is Annie Gagnon with the Canada Sport Institute. Good morning to you, Annie. Uh, good morning, Sue and Andy. You know, under intense scrutiny and amidst the pandemic, the Summer Olympics are going ahead in Tokyo. So how does an athlete prepare mentally and physically for such a, a different looking games? Yeah, it's certainly been a very complex situation with uh, a lot of moving parts for the athletes. We're just under... I'd say just over 90 days for the Olympic Games and about 125 days for the Paralympic Games. And I think one of the biggest challenges for the athletes is uh, the fact that many of the international events and the domestic events have had to be cancelled and postponed. And those are usually pretty critical to uh, identify a spot for Canada to compete at the Games, uh, but also identify the athletes within Canada that we're going to send to the Games. But, you know, our athletes 
are very resilient and, um, you know, they've been uh, training very hard. They've been training in our space at the Canadian Sport Institute Calgary. Uh, and we've done everything in our power to, to allow them to continue to compete and continue to travel in a very safe way. So I think it's, it's definitely been challenging, but uh, Canada hopes to send 400 athletes this summer and it's down the stretch, and we certainly hope to, to make it happen. Fingers crossed that, that it, it goes ahead. Now, I, we know it's going to look different. Do you know, Annie, when the athletes get there, are they sort of in a bubble within the Olympic compound, or has that been decided yet? Yeah, so I think it's definitely going to be a different-looking games, And uh, when the athletes, first of all, uh, Team Canada has definitely reduced the size of the mission staff that will be in Tokyo, and the athletes will be under some very strict uh, guidelines when they get there. And the experience is probably not going to be the same. They are going to arrive. Uh, they're going to be training, competing, and I believe they're going to be leaving right away. So uh, certainly the experience is not going to be the same, but for sure the biggest goal is for them to be able to compete, um, uh, compete at the event. And how, how far in advance, I'm not sure if you've covered this yet, Annie, how far in advance do the athletes have to arrive, I'm thinking for quarantine and for testing purposes? Yeah, that's a good question. And I actually don't have specific dates. Uh, usually, I believe they will be arriving definitely a week uh, before a competition begins. Uh, the deadline to register the athletes are July 5th. The games start on July 23rd. And, uh, yeah, so there de- there will definitely be some um, some quarantine at the time that they arrive. Uh, similar to what we've seen here in Calgary with the curling bubble and then competition and then back home. Annie, last week, the Team Canada clothing, which is always a hot topic ahead of any Olympics, it was released and there were a lot of people hating on Canada's gear. Curious as to what you think about it yourself, but have you heard anything from the athletes? Because I think it's pretty funky stuff. I, I love it. I think it's very avant-garde. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's a piece. Like, the clothing is something athletes are always very proud to wear. And I think the clothing is certainly making an impression this year. And uh, people will definitely notice Team Canada. And, uh, yeah, they'll know that we are present. And it's certainly very funky and flashy. Funky and flashy and, uh, yeah, making a splash, if nothing else. And it's a conversation piece. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Annie. Thank you very much. That is Annie Gagnon, Director of Marketing and Communications at the Canada Sport Institute, just over 90 days away from the Tokyo Games. Go online and check out the gear. The jean jacket is pretty cool.